All right. Well, this is our last Sunday on Mark, so we're obviously not going to make it to the end of Mark. Next week in here, we will start six weeks uh, section on the Westminster Confession. We have a variety of people coming in, including the first two weeks will be other pastors from other churches. Ryan Cavanaugh, who's the director or the assistant director of PDM, the heir apparent to Fred, will be leading us uh, on chapter 20 of the confession. And then the week after that, Jeff Early, who's the assistant pastor in Second President Greenville, will be up with us, and he's going to do chapter 21 and, and is going to also preach for us. That's uh, 12, 7, 12, 17. And then there's a variety of other people from here that will be finishing out the, the remaining of the six weeks. Downstairs, they'll finish up the witnessing class today, and there'll be a 12-week session down there on the book of Ephesians. So, again, the main difference is up here, we just expect you to show up and listen. Uh, down there, they will expect you to do work ahead of time. So if you're interested in actually digging into the book of Ephesians, then I encourage you to go downstairs. Uh, Sparky and Isak will be leading that uh, class together for, for 12 weeks. So finishing up the Gospel of Mark today. The next section, we finished up the section. Remember, the first section I had was uh, the, the mission to the Jews and then we had a, a mission to the Gentiles, Jesus' mission to the Gentiles. And this next section I'm calling, along with D.A. Carson, the removing of the veil. Up to this point, Jesus has been veiled to the world. And, and now the veil is beginning to come off. This is the, this is the turning part, the turning point in the, the gospel of, of Mark. The, uh, particularly at 829 when... Peter at Caesarea Philippi declares Jesus to be the Messiah. That's the, the, the turning point of the book, and it really creates two different halves. There's basically two different you know, main sections to mark with that declaration of Peter being the, the linchpin to go from the first to the second section. In the first part, uh, leading up to that confession, the vast majority of Jesus' teaching is to the masses. After that confession, the majority of Jesus' teaching is to the twelve. Prior to that confession, we get Je uh, Jesus' famous, I tell you the truth, his, his amen, you know, his putting like, this is this is the truth that only occurs once leading up to Peter's confession. It occurs 12 times after Peter's confession. So he's really beginning to focus the teaching, making it very explicit and clear. In the first half, uh, uh, we've seen him constantly dealing with uh, demons and exorcisms. There are none of, there's none of that in the second half. It's more focused on teaching and getting to uh, Jerusalem. In the first half, the disciples completely fail in their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They're, it's just constant, you know, not getting it. In the second half, then the disciples begin to understand. After Peter makes his confession, we see the disciples beginning to grow. But it, even still, we'll see today 
that although they finally have finally recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they're still expecting a royal Messiah rather than a suffering Messiah. We'll see that today. But at least their eyes are beginning to open at this point. In the first half, Jesus leaves Israel altogether to various Gentile cities, but now he's making a beeline to Jerusalem. Everything's focused on coming inward now. First half was spreading outward, Galilee, and to the Gentiles, and then now it's going to be coming in in the second half towards Jerusalem. And interestingly, both halves end with a Christological confession, and both have a Roman connection to them. All right, so the first half ends with Peter's confession of uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and it's at Caesarea Philippi, uh, a Roman city, a Roman uh, stronghold. And then the second kind of narrative, the second half, Mark has the, the Roman centurion at the cross declare, you know, at Jesus' death, this is the Son of God. And so we get this declaration of the Son of God at the end of each of the of the two sections. So uh, we're we're you know we're turning the curve here today in the book. I'm not going to be able to get through all the way to uh, 9:29 today, uh, but I just wanted to show you the section. We're going to get hopefully get through uh, past the the transfiguration, you know, through the confession of Peter and on into the transfiguration. So let me read that section of text for you. Starts, the Pharisees again come. They again come and begin to argue with Jesus. So this is our fourth and uh, last uh, confrontation uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees come and begin to argue with him, seeking him from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Remember, this is right after the feeding of the 4,000. They had seven baskets left over, and the disciples forgot to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having your eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And seven for the 4,000. And for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And Jesus, uh, so then they came to Bethsaida. They get across the Sea of Galilee, they come to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people, they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he went and he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to, ne- to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not seeing, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever, who, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses And one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one uh, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean and they asked him why do the scribes say that Elijah comes first and he said to them Elijah does come first to restore all things and how is it written the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him so the Pharisees come again and demand this sign. Uh, the Greek is much more antagonistic than it gets translated into the English. Just as one example, uh, the word uh, used here for test is not like an objective t- test to determine whether you know something, um, but it's more of trying, it's more, it's the word you would use for, you know, trying to create a stumbling block. They're trying to trick him, test him. And so this whole thing reads very, you know, antagonistic. It is interesting that the word uh, that they ask for is a sign uh, rather than a miracle. It's different. Typically, I mean, Jesus has been doing miracles all along, and Mark records them as miracles. And here they come and ask for a sign. Now, of course, the sign would have to be in some way uh, miraculous, Interestingly, though, you know, in the Old Testament, miracles are not 
given to us as the uh, proof of the genuineness of the prophet. You know, in Deuteronomy, uh, uh, Moses said, this, you know, this is how you'll know if the prophet's real. Not that he performs miracles, but that what he says comes true. And so they're coming. And so you could actually perform a miraculous sign in the Old Testament and still be a false prophet. So they come, they ask for this sign, and what they're basically saying is, you are speaking with authority. You've been teaching as if you speak for God. And if you speak for God, then surely God should send some sort of sign that would indicate that you, are, you, know, that you speak for him. And then we get this phrase that Jesus sighed deeply. You could translate this Greek as he groaned in his spirit. This was just like, oh, will they never see. Jesus has utter dismay at their lack of belief, their lack of trust, their lack of faith. And so he, he just gets on the boat and goes away. He gets on the boat and immediately cautions his disciples to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, of course, they immediately go to discussing with one another about the fact that they had no bread. And the leaven of the Pharisees and the, the leaven of Herod have to be different because there's very little in common between the Pharisees and Herod. And so the most likely the, the leaven of the, the Pharisees is, is that of unbelief or thinking of one's self and one's uh, understanding of the scriptures as important uh, and above the clear teaching of Jesus. The leaven of Herod would be more of the seeking the, the kingdom in this world, the powers of this world. And uh, he sees both of these uh, in, in his disciples. And so they begin discussing about the fact that they have no bread and so then uh, Jesus says, he begins to ask them these questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive uh, or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have your eyes, uh, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Uh, he's, he is uh, laying before them uh, this sense of their continued blindness to who he is and what he can do, and he is exasperated with the disciples much in the same way that he is exasperated with the Pharisees. He's just told them, avoid the sin of the Pharisees, and then they immediately do it. They immediately fall into this sense of unbelief and a lack of understanding of who Jesus is. And so Jesus is receiving opposition from the Pharisees, uh, and then he immediately receives the same sort of opposition uh, from his disciples. Uh, with the Pharisees, uh, it's that they should, uh, they, you know, it, it's a direct opposition. With the, the disciples, it's an opposition of misunderstanding. And that's really been the human reaction of God's people uh, up to this point in the gospel. Uh, with Jesus. They're either opposing him or misunderstanding him uh, all the way through. The people, and we'll see this, in, I think, a little bit later. I have it in the notes. The people that have gotten it, that have understood, 
that have shown faith have, have been outsiders. It's been a Seraphonician woman and a Gentile and, and a variety of people that should be outsiders and shouldn't get it. The uneducated, the unspiritual, the unreligious have been getting it. And the disciples who are following around and the Pharisees are not getting it. And Jesus is now asking these questions. Do you not see? Do you not understand? And then we go immediately into this story about Jesus healing the blind man. And this story is uh, unique amongst uh, all the miracles in that in all the other miracles, Jesus speaks and declares. Even with the deaf mute, he does it, he declares it, and then the and then the mute receives it, right? With this one, he does his miracle action, right? He places his fingers and spittle on the eyes, and then he says, do you see anything? This is the only miracle where Jesus actually asks the person being healed uh, a question, like, did it work? You know, it, never does he ask, did it work? It's always like, done, this is the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus actually asks, do you see anything? And the blind man looks up. He says, I can see, but it, I see so blurrily. Uh, you know, I, peop- I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. And so then Jesus does it again, lays his hands on the eyes, and, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him home saying, uh, do not enter the village. All right, so uh, we've just been on the boat with the disciples, right? And they're as blind as the Pharisees. And then we get off the boat, we deal with a blind man, and we perform this miracle, and he says, do you see? That's exactly what he just said to the disciples. Do you not see? So he's, he's, he's using this as a teaching to his disciples. And then, so the man does see, but he sees vaguely. And then Jesus touches him again, and now he can see. Now he can fully see. Now, notice it doesn't say, you know, often, it, you know, we've had these sections where Jesus doesn't perform any miracles because there's no faith. You know, he goes into a city and there's no faith, and so he doesn't perform any miracles. So one might think that's what's going on here is that the faith of the blind man is growing, right? He does something, the blind man can has a little bit of faith and so he can see a little bit. So Jesus does it again and his faith grows and now he can see all the way. Except that's not mentioned at all in the text. It doesn't mention at all in the text that the faith of the blind man grows. What's mentioned is that Jesus touches him and then touches him again. And I think what we're supposed to see is that this is what's been going on with the disciples. Jesus keeps touching the disciples, as it were, prodding, poking, teaching. And, and we're about to get to the point where they're going to see, but see vaguely. Uh, uh, Peter is going to declare Jesus uh, to be the Messiah. Finally, you can see. But then immediately we're going to have this situation where they're not going to recognize what the Messiah is supposed to be. And Peter's going to say, far be it from you to be a suffering servant. And, and, and Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan. So G- Peter's seeing, but he's seeing like this blind man who can see 
sort of see, but it's like, you know, people walking around like trees. So uh, this story is kind of uh, illustrating for us what's going on in the life of the disciples. Not only is it because of the question, I think, that this particular healing is supposed to be teaching us about the disciples, but what another thing that doesn't come out in the English is in the Greek here, there are eight different words for the word see. They're used nine times. There's eight different words used nine times. And so this little, whatever this is, four verses, it's just see, 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 see. He's really stressing the vision, the ability to see or not see. And so he's talking to the disciples about the importance of them needing to see. And so then that leads into the next, the next section, which is where Peter confesses Christ. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think this is still just part of, of don't tell everybody what, this is just another way of saying don't tell everybody what's happened. And that's another one of the things that we see, uh, we see this uh, shift. That's a constant refrain in the first half of the book. In the last half, uh, after I think 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9, we don't have that anymore. We don't have the don't tell, don't, don't spread the word about who I am. And so I think, the, yeah, this is just another version of keep this to yourself. And so we're still, I mean, right here, we are literally still in the first half, and we're still dealing with this don't communicate who I am, uh, speaking in parables, speaking vaguely, teaching so that only the insiders will understand, although it's always the outsiders in Mark that get it. The outsiders become insiders, and the insiders become outsiders in Mark. So then Jesus asked the question then, who uh, does everyone say that I am? Who the people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Now, this is about as high a praise as you can get. I mean, it is demeaning to Jesus, ultimately. But in terms of just kind of worldly praise, this really is about as high as you can get. Elijah was played a major role in first century Jewish thinking. The, the fact that he went to heaven without dying, apparently, was a, a just really very central and focused in that first century Jewish thinking. There was a, a, almost like you know, as I was, you know, reading in D.A. Carson about it, it, it was almost like, it made me think of, of, of Mariology, how the Catholics are so focused on Mary. There was almost, and, and, you know, see Mary as interceding for them with God and that sort of thing. It almost felt like that, that they had this very high view of Elijah and his role in heaven and his role in the eschaton that Elijah would return and then bring in the new royal kingdom where there were no more Romans. And so he played a very high role. And so to think of Jesus as Elijah in the first century was an even bigger deal than, than, you know, we might think about Jesus as Elijah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's um, Malachi. Do I have that right down here? It's, yeah, it's Malachi. It's the very last two verses in... um, in the Old Testament. Sparky, can you pull that up? Yeah, start starting at four with Moses. Yeah. 
Yeah, but could you actually read it for us, starting at Malachi 4 with Moses? I've got it, but it's further down in my notes somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, and now I know where I have it in my notes, in the transfiguration, because Moses and Elijah show up. So it's interesting. Those are your closing verses of the Old Testament. And then the Gospels open with John the Baptist. Most all the Gospels just start right off with John the Baptist. So we close with that promise, and 400 years go past, and then we open with the fulfillment in John the Baptist in the, in the Gospels. All right, so anyway, this is high praise, and yet it's low praise uh, if, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah. So Jesus has asked them and uh, what the others say. They've responded. Now he says, but what do you say? And Peter says uh, that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. This is the first human uh, to say it in the gospel narrative. Uh, Mark, as the narrator, says it right off the bat in, in 1-1 that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. It's, he's, uh, Jesus is recognized by demons. God himself says it. But this is the first time in the gospel that a human says it. That's why it's the turning point in the gospel. And it's interesting that Jesus, it's almost interesting to me, or it is interesting to me that Jesus does this. When the resurrection comes, it's going to be obvious that Jesus is something different than just Moses or uh, Elijah. But he's asking them now in the middle to accept him as the Messiah. And so uh, Jesus is uh, requiring of his disciples faith in who he is before they see, right? So they've seen miracles, but miracles were done by the prophets as well. And so before they get to see him as the glorified Lord, he is asking them to have faith. So he's asking the disciples to do exactly what he asks us to do, which is to believe while not seeing. Uh, And so you think about Thomas in John 20, when doubting Thomas won't believe until he sees, and then Jesus, after, you know, after Jesus, you know, lets him, says, here, touch the wounds, uh, see that I'm alive, and Thomas then professes his belief, and Jesus responds, you believed because you saw, but this is paraphrase, but, you know, it's the, the greater is those who, see, who do not see and yet believe. That's the, that's the greater. And uh, First Peter kind of picks up on this, and Peter picks up on this in First Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and the, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's just to say that Jesus wanted them to express faith in him as the Savior, as the Messiah, prior to his actually doing the work of being the sacrificial lamb, where it would all fold and fall into place. So now, as, we, as I said, now things are beginning to change. We've now turned the corner into the second half. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Clearly, he said it plainly because 
Peter gets it and rebukes him for it. So Jesus is not, uh, Jesus is saying uh, that he is not the Messiah that they had expected. Jesus does do things in the gospel that clearly indicate Messiah or God-like nature. He reconstitutes Israel uh, by calling the 12 disciples. He uh, reinterprets God's commandments, uh, Mark 2.27. He forgives sins, Mark 2.10. He has power over nature, 4.39, And he speaks for and as God. But he not only does he not define his messianic role as they expected, but he scandalously, he, 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 his, he describes it in contradiction to everything that they expect. Now, we read at Christmas time, we read the Isaiah stories of the suffering servant. We clearly see Jesus, right? When we're reading uh, Isaiah and the suffering servant, to us, we clearly see Jesus. But in first century Jerusalem, they had not associated the, the suffering servant from Isaiah with the Messiah. They were, in, they were two different figures in their minds. And Jesus is putting them uh, together, and this does not fit with the plan uh, that, that the average Jew was expecting. And so, so Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. And then he uh, calls the crowd to himself, and uh, he explains that he is the suffering servant, and as followers of him, they will be suffering servants. Now, Mark has been telling us this all along, but now Jesus is plainly teaching it. So we saw earlier in the John the Baptist uh, beheading narrative, remember how he'd sent out the 12, and then John becomes a martyr, and then the 12 report back, and we said this is to clearly indicate what, what discipleship would be like that there would be suffering involved in uh, being a disciple of Christ. But, of course, you have to have eyes to see to get that. You could easily read right past that and not realize that's what Jesus or what Mark is trying to communicate. So Mark is kind of following Jesus' pattern of teaching in a way that only uh, those who have eyes can see. Uh, this, uh, this way of Jesus' teaching uh, is really brought out in Matthew. So you got in Matthew 13, they have, uh, for the first time, this really big crowd uh, in Matthew 13. And, and Jesus teaches a whole series of parables in uh, Matthew 13. And then they finish up for the day, and the disciples take them at Jesus inside and say, why are you teaching in parables? Just tell them directly what it is you want them to know. And Jesus said, I teach in parables so that those who see will perceive and those who do not will not in other words the parables were designed to communicate to some people and to hide the truth from others and so that's the way it's been in the gospel of mark up to this point now jesus is beginning to teach plainly and he looks them square in the eye and says anyone who wants to save his life will lose it and whoever wants to whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So the, the theme of suffering goes from being in the background to being in the foreground. Yes? Well, I, I, I do think he wants to, you know, I, I think 
referencing himself as the son of man or son of God is to discuss his role. So that's more significant than I. I will be ashamed. But I don't, other than that, I'm not sure why there's a shift from first to third. Spark, any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we just shifted from first person to third person, which is not something we normally do. I had a professor at seminary that did that all the time. He taught, uh, he, he taught uh, Presbyterian standards, and he would say, we believe this and we believe that. And I was about halfway into the semester before I realized he believed that, that the we was, you know, he, w- he took his understanding of Presbyterianism and then made it everyone's understanding of Presbyterianism. Uh, and I, I heard him here very recently on a podcast, and we were about 10 minutes in, and he referred to himself in the third person. I was like, yes, he's still the same guy. <laughs> so, I, I, um, so I don't know. I think, it, it, uh, I think it's more common. Uh, I, I, think in, I think in the case of my professor, he thought too much of himself. Uh, but it is, it is uh, not uncommon in those who are important, right? So the royal we, the, the, the king refers to himself in the third person. And so I think Jesus is doing the same here. He's referring to himself in the third person because of the importance of his role. Yeah. 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 This, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, so, yes, so, yeah, and that really does reflect this big shift that has occurred in the narrative from the secret to the non-secret, as we've been talking about. And then this really puzzling verse that, that has caused people heartburn for years And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so, uh, of course, the liberal uh, interpretation is that uh, Jesus did did expect a bodily return to earth, and he expected to do it, you know, pretty shortly after he ascended into heaven, and he was just wrong, Jesus was just wrong. But conservatives have wrestled with what does this mean? I don't know if it plays into part of the thinking, but the Mormons, you know, think that the Apostle John is still alive. And so, you know, it might play into that thinking that, you know, that John is going to stay alive until Christ returns. But I think it doesn't actually say that, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here that will not taste death until I return. What it says is, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And I would suggest the kingdom of God comes in power at the resurrection. And what he's saying is that you all will see the resurrection and, the ascent, you know, and my ascension, uh, where I will ascend to, my, you know, ascend to the right hand of God the Father to begin my rule and reign. And so Presbyterians often talk about uh, already and not yet, that Christ's kingdom is, in some of its aspects, already with us, and in other aspects, not yet with us. And so what Jesus is saying is that my kingdom will begin shortly at the point of the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Christ.
Right. Okay. And then we get uh, to the transfiguration. I think another indicator of the importance of, of Peter's confession and the transition here in the book, and after six days, Jesus took him, Peter, and James, and John, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. This after six days is after six days since Jesus, Jesus, uh, Peter's profession. And so we've had a creation week now, uh, the length of a, a week, and the veil is going to be fully removed. So remember we called this section the veil being removed. Uh, it was removed uh, partially at the point of Je at Peter's confession, and now Jesus is teaching clearly, and now the veil is going to be removed in an even greater way uh, in his transfiguration. His glory that has been hidden is now going to be revealed to these uh, three men. And as he was transfigured before them, his clothes became whiter uh, than bleach, and Elijah and Moses are seen there talking uh, with uh, Jesus. Now, I mentioned that Elijah had kind of gained in importance in the first century, uh, you know, so that, uh, you know, Moses and Elijah in the first century Judaism would be like the two biggies, right? At this, that's the way they're thinking. But I don't think that that's why God the Father sent Moses and Elijah to uh, meet uh, with Jesus. I think it's very much um, what we're supposed to be thinking about is not the, the current culture, but the passage that Rebecca raised from the end of Malachi, uh, where it talks about, remember my servant Moses, statutes that he gave, and behold, I will send Elijah uh, to make the Messiah's way straight. Uh, and he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers to the children. And so the coming of Elijah and Moses is a reflection of uh, Jesus as a fulfillment of the way in which God would restore his people to himself. That this, was, this was the sign, as it were, that the Pharisees wanted, uh, but it's only given to Peter uh, James and John, those who have been faithful. So then the, the, uh, the, the cloud overshadows them. A uh, voice comes down from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, this is exactly what the Pharisees had asked for. And Jesus said, would not be given to them. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but with them but Jesus only. And as they came down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So here's our final don't speak uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked, well, why do the disciples uh, say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first uh, to restore all things and... Uh, and it, as, sorry, that's a typo. As is written, the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written uh, of him. And so he associates here again uh, Elijah with John the Baptist and what was done uh, to him. And so, uh, again, the, the veil has come off. The, the Pharisees, like the blind man, are beginning slowly to see better and better who this Messiah is, who Jesus is. 
And again, it's not because they're ginning up their own faith, but because of continual touches by Jesus. As Jesus touches them over and over and guides them little by little, they begin to see uh, more and more. So, therefore, any, any questions now about really any of the stuff we've said in Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That they're still waiting for a, a royal Messiah as opposed to a suffering servant. It's hard to say because Judaism is at, at least as diverse as Christianity. There is uh, a whole sect of Judaism that believe that, um, that there is a Messiah that comes in every generation. And so, what was his name? Ben Hud. There was a guy in New York that died like in the 80s. And he was an amazingly prolific writer. And, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, a, a, a very good man. And, and so there's a whole group, a big groundswell to get him declared as the Messiah of that generation. It's usually something, you, a title you get, it's like sainthood. It's a title you get afterwards. And so, you know, you've got, you've got that, and then you've got the, uh, the Jews that are, you know, as liberal as mainline Protestants. And so it's all just a story and then, then you've got the, the Orthodox Judaism, you know, the ones with the, that wear black and have the, the ringlets, and they're going to have a different take. And so it's, it's hard to say because they really are all over the map in their own understanding of their own faith. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Thanks.